johnwesley44.wordpress.com, Sermon 38, Original Sin. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. How widely different is this from the fair pictures of human nature which men have drawn in all ages? The writings of many of the ancients abound with gay descriptions of the dignity of man, whom some of them paint as having all virtue and happiness in his composition, or at least entirely in his power, without being beholden to any other being, yea, as self-sufficient, able to live on his own stock, and little inferior to God himself. Nor have heathens alone, men who are guided in their researches by little more than the dim light of reason, but many likewise of them that bear the name of Christ, and to whom I entrusted the oracles of God, spoken as magnificently concerning the nature of man, as if it were all innocence and perfection. Accounts of this kind have particularly abounded in the present century, and perhaps in no part of the world more than in our own country. Here, not a few persons of strong understanding, as well as extensive learning, have employed their utmost abilities to show what they termed the fair side of human nature. And it must, he acknowledged, that if their accounts of him be just, man is still but a little lower than the angels, or as the words may be more literally rendered, a little less than God. Is it any wonder that these accounts are very readily received by the generality of men? For who is not easily persuaded to think favorably of himself? Accordingly, writers of this kind are most universally read, admired, applauded, and innumerable are the converts they have made, not only in the gay, but the learned world, so that it is now quite fashion unfashionable to talk otherwise, to say anything to the disparagement of human nature, which is generally allowed, notwithstanding a few infirmities, to be very innocent and wise and virtuous. But in the meantime, must, what must we do with our Bibles? For they will never agree with us. These accounts, however pleasing to flesh and blood, are utterly irreconcilable with the scriptural. The scripture avers that by one man's disobedience all men were constituted sinners, that in Adam all died, spiritually died, lost the life and the image of God, that fallen, sinful Adam then begat a son in his own likeness. Nor was it possible he should beget him in any other. For who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? That consequently we, as well as other men, were by nature dead in trespasses and sins, without hope, without God in the world, and therefore children of wrath. That every man may say, I was shapen in wickedness, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That there is no difference, in that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, of that glorious image of God wherein man was originally created. And hence, when the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men, he saw they were all gone out of the way, they were altogether become abominable, there was none righteous, no, not one, none that truly sought after God, just agreeable this to what is declared by the Holy Ghost in the words above recited, God saw, when he looked down from heaven before, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, so great that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is God's account of man, from which I shall take occasion, first, to show what men were before the flood, secondly, to inquire whether they are not the same now, and thirdly, to add some inferences. Part 1. I am first, by opening the words of the text, to show what men were before the flood, and we may fully depend on the account here given. For God saw it, and he cannot be deceived. He saw that the wickedness of man was great, 
not of this or that man, not of a few men only, not barely of the greater part, but of man in general, of men universally. The word includes the whole human race, every partaker of human nature, and it is not easy for us to compute their numbers, to tell how many thousands and millions they were. The earth then retained much of its primeval beauty and original fruitfulness. The face of the globe was not rent and torn as it is now, and spring and summer went hand in hand. It is therefore probable that it afforded sustenance for far more inhabitants than it is now capable of sustaining, and these must be immensely multiplied. While men beget sons and daughters for seven or eight hundred years together, yet among all this inconceivable number only Noah found favor with God. He alone, perhaps including part of his household, was an exception from the universal wickedness which by the just judgment of God, in a short time after, brought on universal destruction. All the rest were partakers in the same guilt as they were in the same punishment. God saw all the imaginations of the thoughts of his heart, of his soul, his inward man, the spirit within him, the principle of all his inward and outward motions. He saw all the imaginations. It is not possible to find a word of a more extensive signification. It includes whatever is formed, made, fabricated within, all that is or passes in the soul, every inclination, affection, passion, appetite, every temper, design, thought. It must, of consequence, include every word and action as naturally flowing from these fountains, and being either good or evil according to the fountain from which they severally flow. Now God saw that all this, the whole thereof, was evil, contrary to moral rectitude, contrary to the nature of God, which necessarily includes all good, contrary to the divine will, the eternal standard of good and evil, contrary to the pure, holy image of God, wherein man was originally created, and wherein he stood, when God, surveying the works of his hands, saw them all to be very good, contrary to justice, mercy, and truth, and to the essential relations which each man bore to his Creator and his fellow creatures. But was there not good mingled with the evil? Was there not light intermixed with the darkness? No, none at all. God saw that the whole imagination of the heart of man was only evil. It cannot indeed be denied, but many of them, perhaps all, had good motions put into their hearts. For the Spirit of God did then also strive with man, if haply he might repent, more especially during that gracious reprieve, the hundred and twenty years while the ark was preparing, but still in his flesh dwelt no good thing. All his nature was purely evil. It was wholly consistent with itself, and unmixed with anything of an opposite nature. However, it may still be matter of inquiry. Was there no intermission of this evil? Were there no lucid intervals wherein something good might be found in the heart of man? We are not here to consider what the grace of God might occasionally work in his soul, and abstracted from this we have no reason to believe there was any intermission of that evil. For God, who saw the whole imagination of the thoughts of his heart to be only evil, saw likewise that it was always the same, that it was only evil continually, every year, every day, every hour, every moment. He never deviated into good. Part 2 Such is the authentic account of the whole race of mankind, which he who knoweth what that what is in man, who searcheth the heart and trieth the reins, hath left upon record for our instruction. Such were all men before God brought the flood upon the earth. We are, secondly, to inquire whether they are the same now. And this is certain. The scripture gives us no reason to think any otherwise of them. On the contrary, all the above cited passages of scripture refer to those who lived after the flood. It was above a thousand years after that God declared by David concerning the children of men, 
They are all gone out of the way of truth and holiness. There is none righteous, no, not one. And to this bear all the prophets witness in their several generations. So Isaiah, concerning God's peculiar people, and certainly the heathens were in no better condition, the whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even unto the head there is no soundness but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. The same account is given by all the apostles, yea, by the whole tenor of the oracles of God. From all these we learn concerning man in his natural state, unassisted by the grace of God, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart is still evil, only evil, and that continually. And this account of the present state of man is confirmed by daily experience. It is true, the natural man discerns it not, and this is not to be wondered at, so long as a man born blind continues so, he is scarce sensible of his want. Much less could we suppose a place where all were born without sight. Would they be sensible of the want of it? In like manner, so long as men remain in their natural blindness of understanding, they are not sensible of their spiritual wants, and of this in particular. But as soon as God opens the eyes of their understanding, they see the state they were in before. They are then deeply convinced that every man living, themselves especially, are, by nature, altogether vanity. That is folly and ignorance, sin and wickedness. We see, when God opens our eyes, that we were before atheoi en toi cosmoi, without God, or rather, atheists in the world. We had, by nature, no knowledge of God, no acquaintance with Him. It is true, as soon as we came to the use of reason, we learned the invisible things of God, even His eternal power and Godhead, from the things that are made. From the things that are seen, we infer the existence of an eternal, powerful being that is not seen. But still, although we acknowledged his being, we had no acquaintance with him. As we know, there is an emperor of China, whom yet we do not know. So we knew there was a king of all the earth, yet we knew him not. Indeed, we could not by any of our natural faculties, by none of these could we attain the knowledge of God. We could no more perceive him by our natural understanding than we could see him with our eyes. For no one knoweth the Father but the Son, and he to whom the Son willeth to reveal him. And no one knoweth the Son but the Father, and he to whom the Father revealeth him. We read of an ancient king who, being desirous to know what was the natural language of men, in order to bring the matter to a certain issue, made the following experiment. He ordered two infants, as soon as they were born, to be conveyed to a place prepared for them, where they were brought up without any instruction at all and without ever hearing a human voice. And what was the event? Why, that when they were at length brought out of their confinement, they spoke no language at all. They uttered only inarticulate sounds like those of other animals. Were two infants in like manner to be brought up from the womb without being instructed in any religion, there is little room to doubt, but unless the grace of God interposed, the event would be just the same. They would have no religion at all. Thy would have no more knowledge of God than the beasts of the field, than the wild ass cult. Such is natural religion, abstracted from traditional and from the influences of God's spirit. And having no knowledge, we can have no love of God. We cannot love him we know not. Most men talk indeed of loving God and perhaps imagine they do. At least few will acknowledge they do not love him. But the fact is too plain to be denied. No man loves God by nature, any more than he does a stone, or the earth he treads upon. What we love we delight in, but no man has naturally any delight in God. In our natural state we cannot conceive how any one should delight in him. We take no pleasure in him at all. He is utterly tasteless to us. To love God, 
it is far above, out of our sight. We cannot naturally attain unto it. We have by nature not only no love, but no fear of God. It is allowed, indeed, that most men have, sooner or later, a kind of senseless, irrational fear, properly called superstition, though the blundering Epicureans gave it the name of religion. Yet even this is not natural, but acquired chiefly by conversation or from example. By nature, God is not in all our thoughts. We leave him to manage his own affairs, to sit quietly, as we imagine, in heaven, and leave us on earth to manage ours, so that we have no more of the fear of God before our eyes than the love of God in our hearts. Thus are all men atheists in the world. But atheism itself does not screen us from idolatry. In his natural state, every man born into the world is a rank idolater. Perhaps, indeed, we may not be such in the vulgar sense of the word. We do know, like the idolatrous heathens, worship molten or graven images. We do not bow down to the stock of a tree, to the work of our own hands. We do not pray to the angels or saints in heaven any more than to the saints that are upon the earth. But what then? We have set up our idols in our hearts, and to these we bow down and worship them. We worship ourselves when we pray that honor to ourselves which is due to God only. Therefore all pride is idolatry. It is ascribing to ourselves what is due to God alone. And although pride was not made for man, yet where is the man that is born without it? But hereby we rob God of his unalienable right and idolatrously usurp his glory. But pride is not the only sort of idolatry which we are all by nature guilty of. Satan has stamped his own image on our heart in self-will also. I will, said he, before he was cast out of heaven, I will sit upon the sides of the north. I will do my own will and pleasure, independently on that of my Creator. The same does every man born into the world say, and that in a thousand instances. Nay, and about to it too, without ever blushing upon the account without either fear or shame. Ask the man, why do you do this? He answers, because I had a mind to it. What is this but because it was my will? That is, in effect, because the devil and I agreed, because Satan and I govern our actions by one and the same principle. The will of God, meantime, is not in his thoughts, is not considered in the least degree, although it be the supreme rule of every intelligent creature, whether in heaven or earth, resulting from the essential, unalterable relation which all creatures bear to their creator so far we bear the image of the devil and tread in his steps but at the next step we leave satan behind we run into an idolatry whereof he is not guilty i mean love of the world which is now as natural to every man as to love his own will what is more natural to us than to seek happiness in the creature instead of the creator to seek that satisfaction in the works of his hands which can be found in god only what more natural than the desire of the flesh, that is, of the pleasures of sense in every kind? Men, indeed, talk magnificently of despising these low, low pleasures, particularly men of learning and education. They affect to sit loose to the gratification of these appetites, wherein they stand on a level with the beasts that perish. But it is mere affection, for every man is conscious to himself that in this respect he is by nature a very beast. Sensual appetites, even those of the lowest kind, have more or less the dominion over him. They lead him captive, they drag him to and fro in spite of his boasted reason. The man with all his good breeding and other accomplishments has no preeminence over the goat. Nay, it is much to be doubted whether the beast has not the preeminence over him. Certainly he has, if we may hearken to one of their modern oracles, who very decently tells us, Once in a season beasts 
true taste of love, only the beast of reason is its slave, and in that folly drudges all the year. A considerable difference indeed, it must be allowed, there is between man and man arising, beside that wrought by preventing grace, from difference of constitution and of education. But notwithstanding this, who that is not utterly ignorant of himself can here cast the first stone at another? Who can abide the test of our blessed Lord's comment on the seventh commandment? He that looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart, so that one knows not which to wonder at most, the ignorance or the insolence of those men who speak with such disdain of them that are overcome by desires which every man has felt in his own breast, the desire of every pleasure of sense, innocent or not, being natural to every child of man. And so is the desire of the eye, the desire of the pleasures of the imagination. These arise either from great or beautiful or uncommon objects. If the two former do not coincide with the latter, perhaps it would appear upon a diligent inquiry that neither grand nor beautiful objects please any longer than they are new, that when the novelty of them is over, the greatest part, at least, of the pleasure they give is over, and in the same proportion as they become familiar, they become flat and insipid. But let us experience this ever so often. The same desire will remain still. The inbred thirst continues fixed in the soul. Nay, the more it is indulged, the more it increases and incites us to follow after another, and yet another object, although we leave every one with an abortive hope and a deluded expectation. Yea, the hoary fool who many days has struggled with continued sorrow renews his hope and fondly lays the desperate bet upon to-morrow. To-morrow comes, tis noon, tis night, this day like all the former flies, yet on he goes to seek delight, to-morrow till to-night he dies. A third symptom of this fatal disease, the love of the world, which is so deeply rooted in our nature, is the pride of life, the desire of praise, of the honour that cometh of men. This the greatest admirers of human nature allow to be strictly natural, as natural as the sight or hearing or any other of the external senses. And are they ashamed of it, even men of letters, men of refined and improved understanding? So from, far from it that they glory therein. They applaud themselves for their love of applause. Yea, eminent Christians, so called, make no difficulty of adopting the sayings of the old vain heathen. Anime dissoluti est et nequam negligere quid de se homines sentient. Not to regard what men think of us is the mark of a wicked and abandoned mind so that to go calm and unmoved through honour and dishonour, through evil report and good report, is with them a sign of one that is indeed not fit to live. Away with such a flow from the earth! But would one imagine that these men had ever heard of Jesus Christ or his apostles, or that they knew who it was that said, How can ye believe who receive honour of one of another, and seek not the honour which cometh of God only? But if this is really so, if it be impossible to believe, and consequently to please God, so long as we receive or seek honour one of another, and seek not the honour which cometh of God only, then in what condition are all mankind, the Christians as well as heathens, since they all seek honour one of another, since it is as natural for them so to do, themselves being the judges, as it is to see the light which strikes upon their eye, or to hear the sound which enters their ear. Yea, since they are counted a sign of a virtuous mind, to seek the praise of men, and of a vicious one, to be content with the honour that cometh of God only. Part 3. I proceed to draw a few inferences from what has been said, and first from hence we may learn one grand fundamental difference between Christianity, considered as a system of doctrines, and the most refined heathenism. Many of the ancient heathens have largely described the vices of particular men, 
They have spoken much against their covetousness or cruelty, their luxury or prodigality. Some have dared to say that no man is born without vices of one kind or another. But still, as none of them were apprised of the fall of man, so none of them knew of his total corruption. They knew not that all men were empty of all good and filled with all manner of evil. They were wholly ignorant of the entire deprivation of the whole human nature, of every man born into the world, in every faculty of his soul, not so much by those particular vices which reign in particular persons, as by the general flood of atheism and idolatry, of pride, self-will, and love of the world. This, therefore, is the first grand distinguishing point between heathenism and Christianity. The one acknowledges that many men are infected with many vices, and even born with a proneness to them but supposes with all that in some the natural good much overbalances the evil. The other declares that all men are conceived in sin, and shapen in wickedness, that hence there is in every man a carnal mind which is enmity against God, which is not, cannot be subject to his law, and which so infects the whole soul that there dwelleth in him, in his flesh, his natural state, no good thing, but every imagination of the thoughts of his heart is evil, only evil, and that continually. Hence, we may secondly learn that all who deny this, call it original sin or by any other title, are put heathen still in the fundamental point which differences heathenism from Christianity. They may, indeed, allow that men have many vices, that some are born with us, and that, consequently, we are not born altogether so wise or so virtuous as we should be. There being few that will roundly affirm, we are born with as much propensity to good as to evil, and that every man is, by nature, as virtuous and wise as Adam was at his creation. And here is the shibboleth. Is man, by nature, filled with all manner of evil? Is he void of all good? Is he wholly fallen? Is his soul totally corrupted? Or, to come back to the text, is every imagination of the thoughts of his heart only evil continually? Allow this, and you are so far a Christian. Deny it, and you are but unheathen still. We may learn from hence, in the third place, what is the proper nature of religion, of the religion of Jesus Christ. It is Therapeia Psyches, God method, God's method of healing a soul, which is thus diseased. Hereby the great physician of souls applies medicines to heal the sickness, to restore human nature, totally corrupted in all its faculties. God heals all our atheism by the knowledge of himself and about, of Jesus Christ, whom he hath sent, by giving us faith the divine evidence and conviction of God and of the things of God. In particular, of this important truth, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. By repentance and lowliness of heart, the deadly disease of pride is healed. That of self-will by resignation, a meek and thankful submission to the will of God. And for the love of the world in all its branches, the love of God is the sovereign remedy. Now this is properly religion, faith, thus working by love working the genuine meek humility, entire deadness to the world, with a loving, thankful acquiescence in, and conformity to, the whole will and word of God. Indeed, if man were not thus fallen, there would be no need of all this. There would be no occasion for this work in the heart, this renewal in the spirit of our mind. The superfluity of godliness would then be a more proper expression than the superfluity of naughtiness. For an outside religion, without any godliness at all, would suffice to all rational intents and purposes. It does, accordingly, suffice in the judgment of those who deny this corruption of our nature. They make very little more of religion than the famous Mr. Hobbes did of reason. According to him, reason is only a well-ordered train of words. According to them, 
Religion is only a well-ordered train of words and actions, and they speak consistently with themselves. For if the inside be not full of wickedness, if this be clean already, what remains but to cleanse the outside of the cup? Outward reformation, if their supposition is just, is indeed the one thing needful. But ye have not so learned the oracles of God. Ye know that he who ha- who seeth what is in man gives gives a far different account both of nature and grace, of our fall and our recovery. Ye know that the great end of religion is to renew our hearts in the image of God, to repair that total loss of righteousness and true holiness which we sustained by the sin of our first parent. Ye know that all religion which does not answer this end, all that stops short of this, the renewal of our soul in the image of God, after the likeness of him that created us, is no other than a poor farce and a mere mockery of God to the destruction of our own soul. O oh, beware of all those teachers of lies who would palm this upon you for Christianity. Regard them not, although they should come unto you with all the deceivableness of unrighteousness, with all the smoothness of language, all decency, yea, beauty and diligence of expression, all professions of earnest good will to you and reverence for the holy scriptures. Keep to the plain old faith, once delivered to the saints, and delivered by the Spirit of God to our hearts. Know your disease, know your cure. You were born in sin, therefore ye must be born again, born of God. By nature ye are wholly corrupted, by grace ye shall be wholly renewed. In Adam ye all died, in the second Adam, in Christ ye all are made alive. You that were dead in sin hath he quickened. He hath already given you a principle of life, even faith in him who loved you and gave himself for you. Now go on from faith to faith, until your whole sickness be healed, and all that mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. John Wesley forty four dot wordpress dot com